This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Ollie Tikkanen. And, and maybe if we talk a little bit about the past and future analyst methods for sedentary behavior and physical activity measurements, you've been doing studies about cut points, you've been doing deep learning, statistical learning methods, and, and also calibration of machine learning models. How do you see the, see the field progressing? Where, where are we going with the analysis methods? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I've been all over the map in terms of both the types of um, validations or de- model development that I've done, and and also kind of my view on it too. I mean, I when I did my my dissertation back in 2012, 2013, I was very much in the boat thinking that machine learning models were the way forward. They are, you know, I mean, we can show in lab settings that they are more accurate. They allow for a greater v- variety of outcomes or metrics that we can that we can uh, assess with the device. They do a better job capturing some of the richness and the nuance and the data that things like cut points just don't. And so there's a lot of reasons to think that that type of approach, more advanced analytics to deal with more complex data will give you better outcomes. I've had to eat that a little bit over the last, I mean, it, the field has not progressed nearly as much as I thought it would over time uh, in terms of, you know, most people aren't adopting those types of methods for their analysis. Certainly more groups are now. And I think we're getting to a, a, a point where there, we, we know enough about the models, how they work, how well they work, and whom they work, you know, those types of things. There's enough expertise now on how we can deploy these in a somewhat reasonable way so that they're not, you don't have to be an expert in coding to be able to utilize these models. Or there are enough experts in coding to where you can find one and collaborate with them. I mean, that's the alternate approach, right? And so we are we are building toward those situations where it becomes easier to, to use these types of models. But at the end of the day, you know, I think a couple major things I have I've noticed in my time this type of analysis, and one is from the research grade field, and one's from the consumer field. It seems like ease of use is uh, probably, at least in most cases, the most important consideration that researchers use um, to decide what device they're going to use, but also to decide what analytic methods they're going to use. And what I mean by that is, you know, if we were able to create a machine learning model that had really, really high accuracy for measuring calories, um, unless we make that somewhat easy for the end user to be able to use, it's not going to get used. And, that, and that's what we're seeing in, in We've published a few review studies now, my, my group, I think we've got three, where we just see this, you know, so many models get developed and so few models get used by people outside of the original research group. And that's a problem. And, and, and uh, you know, because we're not, if people aren't using these models, again, it doesn't matter how good they are. They're not actually being able to use, be used to understand behavior um, and how it changes over time or how it relates to certain health metrics and you know those outcomes that we're so interested in and so we have to make these models deployable or, or accessible to people who aren't in this small group of experts who develop these right and so um, that's been one context is I mean we can just look at the field and say yeah we're developing lots of models but if you look at what the end users are actually ha- using the vast majority is still steps or cut points 
based approaches, very, very simple analytic techniques to try to gain uh, insight into physical activity and sedentary behavior. So that's the that's the one context or, or area. The other one is you can just look at the proliferation of the consumer wearables. I mean, they're obviously for personal use, you know, they're, they're selling millions and millions of devices every year. But even if you look at um, grant applications for big epidemiologic studies or intervention type work, more and more researchers are relying on the consumer wearables. And, you know, I think at the expense of the research grade devices. And so we think, oh, why is that? You know, they're, they're maybe a little bit cheaper, but not substantially. Um, some of them capture different variables like heart rate that most of the research grade, at least the accelerometer based research grade devices don't capture. So are they looking for the additional value that you get from something like a heart rate metric? Um, or is it just that these are really easy to use? You know, they, they, uh, don't require really any decision making. You put in the demographics of the person and it spits out step count, calories burned, time in certain activity types average and peak heart rate through the day, sleep quality, and are they just taking those metrics because they don't have to make any decisions. They don't have to figure out, okay, you know, what model was validated in this population and do I have the expertise to deploy this and what form does the data need to be in and all those things. It just gets cut out with the consumer wearables and the consumer wearables spit out an outcome and the researchers say, okay, well, that's good enough, right? And, And so... I fear that uh, in the sake or for the sake of, of minimizing the burden of using these devices, people are opting for these very, very easy methods, whether it's the consumer wearables or it's simple outputs from the, the, from the research grade devices. And so I think, um, you know, we have to acknowledge that that is the case. And so whenever we're making or we're developing our models, we have to have an eye toward usability because otherwise they, they just won't they won't get developed or, or they won't get, they won't get utilized. And so one uh, uh, paper we just uh, got published and I don't know if it's in press or if it's actually out and available now, but um, we created uh, what we call a repository. And so this was led by Kim Clevenger out at Utah state, but she developed a website where we tried to collect every single advanced analytic model that we could find for characterizing physical activity and then we've organized them according to population. So if you want to sample or if you want to measure physical activity in kids, here are all the models available. It, we organized it by device brand. So if you've got a Fibian device and you want to know, then here are the models available. Or if you have an active pal, here are the models available. If you, um, that we did it by, I think, placement site. So, you know, if you're wearing a device on the hip, here are models available. So we, we tried to accumulate every model uh, that's been developed for the research grade accelerometer uh, devices and put it all in one place. And we update that every three months. So it's, it is pretty much current um, in terms of what's available. And so people that are looking for, you know, what is the best method? You can go to a single location and find it. We also are in the process of developing example data for any of those models and for any of the models that, um, provided code or access to the actual model for use, we have that there too. And so you can go to that place and find the models that are most appropriate given your your population, the device you're using, the placement of the device. And then also it should give you everything at least that was available to us to help in deploying those models. And what we hope that does is improve adoption of some of these more analytic, advanced analytic approaches to analyzing data.
So that's, that's our goal. We have tried for years to get companies to do that. Um, there was some momentum at NIH at one point to try to develop some kind of a, a, a repository like this. And so uh, we're trying this and, and we hope that people will, will be able to use this as a, as a place uh, to, to get access to the best, most recent available models. For most sedentary behavior and physical activity researchers, collecting the research data is one of the most frustrating steps of a project, especially as inefficient data collection steals too much of your precious time, causes unnecessary stress and hassle, and can easily derail progress of your project. This is why we devised a revolutionary new way to collect data. Introducing Fibian Sense Motion, the beginning of a new era. Fibian Sense Motion is a cutting edge, next generation system that allows you to easily and remotely collect, store, and manage data. Our solution features a tiny, waterproof device that captures the sedentary behavior and physical activity data a mobile app for automatic uploading of the data from the device, and a cloud service for managing the data. Even better, all collected data is GDPR compliant, and you have access to automatically analyzed variables of activity types and raw 3-axis accelerometer data. Don't compromise on the quality of your research or the project timeframes. Discover the convenience and power behind our solution at sense.fibian.com. That is S-E-N-S dot Fibian, created by researchers for researchers. Now that, that sounds really, really useful. Let's, let's add the link to the uh, show notes or in the episode description. That's, that sounds very, very nice. And, and you said ease of use is usually the, the most important with the machine learning models, could you just kind of have them running in a cloud that people could just upload their data in the cloud and, and everything would happen there and it would actually spit out the result variables? Or, or is there something that is more complicated that it cannot be done in, in certain cases? Yeah, I, it's a good question, Ali. I don't think that that, I think that that would work. I don't think that there, I don't think you know, because fundamentally, what is a machine learning model compared to a cut point approach? Well, you still need a series of inputs and you have to calculate those somehow, but that can be done. I mean, as long as the data structure is known and as long as we know what things we're calculating. So if you want to calculate mean, variance, you know, the number of median crossings, maybe some frequency, um, yeah, some time, so time domain, some frequency domain features, right? As long as we know what those are and the calculations exist within the software, whether that's cloud-based or, or, you know, a hard drive computer, the those should be able to easily be calculated. So you've got your inputs, you've got the model that's built into the cloud, let's say, and then it spits out the outputs. And, you know, we, we would have to, I mean, with any of these things, you have to filter out wear time for non-wear, you know, and some of those things. But that's true with our cut point approaches, too. Right. So when you when you upload data to Actigraph or when you use the R software to try to use GGIR, you do the same things as, you know, you have to identify non wear time. OK, you exclude that you set certain wear time criteria and say well, days have to have at least 16 hours of valid data. If not, you exclude that. Right. So 
those things are common across any model you use, simple or complex. And so I don't see a fundamental difference um, with how the machine learning or an advanced analytic model would work. You just have to be able to put those models into a place where the data can get extracted, the necessary features can get calculated automatically, and then the outcomes can be you know, outputted in a, in a relatively easy format. And we've tried to get traction, you know, from, from device companies um, for which we develop analytic models. And, and I'm not trying to pick on Actigraph at all. I, you know, I use Actigraph devices more than anything else. But Actigraph is point and click. And that's extremely attractive because, you know, you can just click on things and say, okay, I want this cut point. I want this thing. Please exclude data or days with less than 10 hours of data. And then it's, it exports things into a really easy to understand Excel format, right? So it's very user friendly relative to trying to code in R or Python or, or something like that. And, and so, you know, they have lots of cut points available within ActiLife software. We have, and they also have, um, they have a feature extraction tool now where you can calculate really a lot of the metrics that you use as inputs to machine learning models. And so I, we've contacted them a couple of times asking like, can you put some machine learning models in alongside the cut point approaches so that the machine learning models become point and click? Because if you do that, people will use them. And if people use them, then we'll understand how well they work. And do they, you know, are they as good as we think they are or do they blow up in certain settings or in certain populations and some of those things. And so, no, I don't see any fundamental difference in um, what it would take to put a machine learning model into a point and click format or a cloud-based format than there are for cut points. Cut points are just easier to understand, but I don't think it's it, it's that you couldn't do something with machine learning models to automate a lot of the process. I'm just not a programmer, so I can't do any of it myself. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's not so important to understand how it's doing because if it's just giving valid results and you can do it easily, it shouldn't be a problem if you don't understand. I don't know if anyone understands the machine learning, what it's actually doing, yeah. It is certainly the case, and I expect, you know, part part of the slow adoption of machine learning models is it is less predictable. Um, and, you know, I'll just, I'll give you one anecdote, and I'll, from talking with others, we've also seen this. So, you know, when you do cut point models or regression models, it's very clear how they operate, you know, and, and they're, um, I mean, you can just look at the model and say, okay, well, based on the way this model is developed, if somebody has zero counts, then their energy expenditure is going to be 2.1 mets, right? And if they put a thousand counts in, then their energy expenditure. Machine learning models sometimes give outputs that are, especially in the energy expenditure realm, that are not um, physiologically possible, right? And, and so, whereas a regression model, you know, like this thing can't possibly spit out less than 2.1 mets. There have been occasions with our machine learning models that we'll get negative values for energy expenditure, uh, or we'll get values of, you know, 36 mets or something that's just, I mean, it's so extremely high that you know that that's not physiologically possible. And so we, you know, tried to understand, okay, that's not, I mean, that's just the nature of machine learning is it's black box. We don't understand how it works and what, what inputs are affecting that to give us these, these, or these values that are non you know, not tenable. But what we can do is you can set up a floor function and say, okay, well, anything that the model spits out less than a met, you just reassign a value of one met. And that takes care of any non, you know, or any negative or, or non-physiologically possible values on the low end. And then depending on your population, you can do the same thing with the ceiling function and say, okay, you know, if we're dealing with older adults, 
nobody's going to have a, a, a maximal capability of more than 12 mats. So any values you see more than 12 mats, you just reassign to 12 mats, right? And, and so you can make some of the concerns about machine learning a lot less concerning or more, more uh, easily easy to deal with with some very simple steps like that. And we've done this, and I know of at least two other research groups who independently did the same type of thing, and we never communicated about it, but then when we did, it's like, oh, I'm glad we're all handling this weird situation the same way, you know? And and so uh, I think you can remove some of the concerns about how these function by putting in some fairly easy things like that. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Research Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.